0: hello everyone and welcome to golden walkman magazine my name is david walker and this is our fourth themed issue um ever and um the fourth of 2020 it is april 2020 and this theme is uh the theme of parents and children and our guest editor for this issue uh was a huey and um just like I've been finding with all of these themed issues, I really enjoy giving the reins over uh, to someone else um, to to find out what they uh, are looking for and what they find to be, uh, you know, fitting the theme well and to be published and um, the the things that they put together it just takes on a whole new life and i think breathes something totally new uh into the magazine that i'm really 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 enjoying and um i hope that all of you are as well so um this uh this issue uh again was uh and i i just want to go over all like with all these issues what this is. So every month of this year and we're probably doing it again next year, I have a new um, editor, someone new that is coming in and deciding what we publish based off a theme that they created. Um, And if you haven't heard the other ones, I I suggest going back and listening to the ones for January, February and March. Um, All of those have been wonderful. Um, And uh yeah it it's just a great experiment that's been working out really well um and this is no exception so i really hope you enjoy this uh issue um we have wonderful pieces we have five different pieces here um from five different uh writers so i hope you enjoy this uh this is the themed issue for april 2020 uh the theme of parents and children by the guest editor, Amorak Huey. Hope you enjoy it.
1: This is Grace Gardner, and I'm reading my poem, Father, Daughter, Dance. This poem has an epigraph by a 19th century writer and critic, Jean-Baptiste Alphonse Carr. And the epigraph is a French aphorism that my father uses all the time, actually. I'll read and translate the epigraph first and then go ahead and read the poem. So the epigraph reads, plus ça change, plus c'est la même chose, and translates to, the more things change, The more they stay the same. And now my poem, Father-Daughter-Dance. In the sticky breath of July, my father took me aside to a less trafficked corner of our wraparound porch and placed in my twelve-year-old hand a pack of gum, asked if I would help him quit cigarettes. I felt my father's trust timid in my palm. He had known cigarettes much longer than me. The gray gum seemed a heavier communion than the one he, Anglican boy turned agnostic scientist, wasn't allowed to take in Catholic mass a promise deeper than the apocryphal body and blood. He turns fifty this year, and I twenty-two. He still smokes, and I've begun to refuse Christ under my tongue. Is it weakness on either of our parts, how he comes always out of the darkness to me with the familiar fleck of flame on his lips, how I am less sure of the light. When we converse on the porch, he wafts smoke away from my face, out of my path, though he doesn't know how I enjoy, how I have always enjoyed his incense of chemicalled earth and plant. The crisp wisps circle off his cigarettes like blessings, sweeter than scents. As one might gather from this poem's title, um, this poem is written for my father, but it's also written for all of the loved ones in my life who smoke, um, and by extension of that, all of my loved ones who participate in or define themselves by lifestyles that are often unfairly judged. Um, I often call myself the most non-smoking smoker there ever was because I am so drawn to and really take comfort in the scent and sensation of cigarette smoke, though I've never myself taken a drag. Smokers um, are my people. Uh, and when I say that, I don't mean an endorsement of big tobacco or even a romanticization of addiction, nothing like that. Um, I guess what I mean is that I hope this poem opens up and even puts pressure on the way we as a culture evaluate virtue or vice um, and think about stigma and shame. The world um, and its people are just so much more complex than either-or binary thinking allows, And I'm grateful that writing poetry is one space where I can intentionally expand lines of thought and attitude um, into a perspective that is, you know, as the poem says, quote, sweeter than sense.
2: Hello, my name is Devin Marsh, and I will read my poem called Pearls pearls. Daybreak, the sun and I see eye to eye. Air lies almost still, and a keen light illuminates the optimistic face of things. I finish a first cup of coffee, put off waking my son. I could give him some bits of wisdom right now. Maybe I'll share my thoughts as he sleeps. He won't hear them, and so won't resent me for them. Outside, spider webs drape the windows. The sun turns the silk to gold, and the gold strands hold drops of dew like pearls. First breath of dawn pulses the webs, undulating strings of beads. The spiders have caught no insects, only dew that can get cleanly away. I try to photograph the moment, the glint in each sphere, the delicate threads, droplets on filaments of silk, waiting patiently to make their escape. I might as well photograph first love, antimatter, a ghost. I give up after several tries, turn instead to preparing breakfast for my son. He will awaken, sad from loss, bereft, a complex, empty web, not even holding droplets of dew that could slide like pearls from a broken strand. This is Devon Marsh. I hope you enjoyed hearing my poem, Pearls, in Golden Walkman Magazine. I was thinking about how to describe my writing process recently, when my older son and I fell into a conversation about a college math problem he learned to solve. The solution involved a technique called a Laplace transform. In a nutshell, that's a method of working out a difficult set of differential equations By transforming them into algebraic equations, they can be solved more easily. It occurred to me that the Laplace transform does for complex equations what metaphors can do for complex human emotions. Our own emotions and our empathy for others and their emotions can be difficult to resolve and understand. Yet to interact effectively with other people, especially people we care about, we at least need to strive for understanding. Thinking metaphorically about something I see in the natural world and relating it in some way to human emotion can prompt me to move closer to empathizing with what someone else is experiencing. The metaphors I choose can help me think differently about a human problem, possibly transforming it into something I can grasp. I suppose I've just used a mathematical principle as a metaphor for the
3: usefulness of metaphors in poetry. Maybe that proves my point. I'm Katie
4: Manning, and this poem is called Dear Diary. I watched Mia Thermopolis learn that she was a princess, and I prayed that my mother had been lying to me all of my life, that some day Julie Andrews would arrive at my door and tell me that my real father had been a king of a small, pear-loving country, that he'd loved my mother and me, but couldn't abandon his people and his lineage to live quietly with us, that he was a good man and wise, that he'd left me this diary and letter to guide me as i decided who I would become that new hair and make-up would be included, that I'd get to travel the world, wear ball gowns, bring my best friends to my palace. I would also choose to rule, of course. I'd take the power to help the poor, and would use my privilege to get more women into the grey wigs of Parliament. But when I met my father the night before I turned thirty, this possibility came to an end. This is the power of stories. I used to wish my life were built on better lies. I still wish my father were a king who chose his country over us and died. Hello, this is Katie Manning, and I'm going to tell you a little bit about my poem, Dear Diary. The first thing I want to tell you about this poem is that I wrote it in rhymed couplets. And I think when you can't see it on the page, it can be a little bit hard to get that it's in rhymed couplets because the lines are very long. um, So the rhymes don't necessarily chime in the same way that they would if uh, the lines were shorter. So some of the rhymes are near rhymes, which also disguises them a little bit, like father, mother, and quietly diary, But some of the rhymes are exact, hair, wear, and choose, use. So if you do listen to the poem again after hearing my analysis of it, then I hope you'll listen for those long lines and those rhymed couplets. It was a useful generative device as I was creating the poem, um, and then as I revised it, I kind of polished some things, and the rhymed couplets stayed. Another thing that I'll say about this poem is that it's part of a larger project that I'm working on, um, where I'm exploring trauma and grief, and I started writing about some more recent traumatic events that my family has experienced, but um, it's expanded from there to... Um, examine some things that I experienced from childhood to the present. Um, And I've been surprised by some of the ways that pop culture references and other kinds of playful things have crept into this project. Um, And I think that might be a hallmark of my work that even when I'm writing about very serious sorts of topics, um, there's always a playfulness to my writing. Um, there's always a playfulness to me I think dark humor is sort of the way that I get through life so my
3: poetry and I have that in common thanks for listening
5: my name is Micah Chatterton and this is listening to Bella Bartok for the first time Somewhere between my childhood and my children, near Flagstaff, a grand piano fell from a truck bed into our street. My mother heard the crash and wail and whalebone echo from the kitchen sink. She watched the oblivious pickup blur away into dishwater steam, then called us outside, my dad and me, to see the musical heap quiet in its gash of sunlight. While we waited, we gathered up splinters and strings of spilled gut, unclaimed legs, limbs, hammers, dampers, molding flourishes, which I remember as lions, faces grated flat by road rash, detached from the lid and case and rolled into a ditch. When no one came back, we brought the body of the piano inside on a cart. For months, the parts leaned on a wall in the front room, innards stacked, wrapped in horse blankets. The edges of the instrument faded under dust, like newsprint, like silt on a shipwreck, like a struck animal shuddering in a box. And yet there were nights, which I remember as every night, I would catch the piano as I crept out of bed to pee, strange and silent as it once was, a carcass on a road. i tiptoe in, up, pull the blanket, reach into the break of its body, to find one good, sad, hammer, lift, drop, middle B, again, 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 a note to ring out, to hold naked in the air. I wrote this poem out of the collision of two experiences in my brain listening to the pianist bella bartok after some smarties i trust suggested his music and suddenly reliving the memory of this piano that fell off a truck near my house when i was six years old my parents claimed the piano and restored it it's still in their living room i had been wanting to write about this memory for years been haunted by brief images But I could never find the will or inspiration to recreate or fictionalize the spaces between those images. Listening to Bartok jolted me long enough to write this poem, to give solid shape to something blurry and unformed from my past and to scratch whatever spiritual itch I had that caused me to daydream about smashed pianos through my twenties and thirties. Though you can't see it, I also had a lot of fun playing with the spacing of the words on the page to try to match the rests and spacing of music. See how that changed my reading of the poem. Looking back, This poem, like many of my other favorite uh, poems I've written, not the best, but my favorites is at once the exorcism of a memory, an ars poetica, and an attempt to expand the experience of reading text on a page. I hope you enjoyed it, and thank you for listening.
3: My name is Elizabeth Cantwell and this is my poem Lichtenberg Scarring. When Boris Karloff's fourth wife went into labor with his only daughter he was on set filming Son of Frankenstein and rushed to the hospital in full makeup The pale, pale, stitched-on flesh and heavy-lidded eyes swaying over the gray but rapidly reddening form, emerging from the mother, just now coming to terms with the way every love splits you open with fear, I frequently find myself lying awake and imagining all the way my kids could die, killed in a car crash, struck by a disease too brutal and invasive for any doctor to eradicate, taken from their bedrooms at night by an unseen hand, the skull caved in by the bat, taken down over decades by the slow yet persistent erosion of the mind's will to survive by chemicals in the brain you know are there because you helped encode them in their tiny strands of DNA. Perhaps when Frankenstein saw his monster wake up, it was not the revulsion of the unnatural image that he desired immediately to stamp out, but the instantaneous understanding that only through the death of this thing he had created could he be free of the anxiety and responsibility and unflinching love he had inflicted on himself with a single stroke of electrical discharge. Perhaps he yearned to be Giovanni Rabisi in the X-Files episode, whose ability to absorb and channel lightning leaves him not electrified, but empty and craving death, a monster with only himself to animate. In the hospital room, Karloff touches his wife's hair. Tears flow down the sides of his caked-on face that is also not his face. Did the daughter see her father as a creature too empathetic to live successfully in this world, to be able to smile while lying to her about how most people in this world are good. What do we inherit, and what do we pass on? The thirst for creating something that scares us. And yet, when I think about my children's faces, of course I want to lie down in a puddle, in a thunderstorm, and welcome the vaporizing flash. So I guess the inspiration for this poem um, is that opening image, the story of Boris Karloff walking into the hospital to see his daughter being born in the full monster makeup um, from Son of Frankenstein. And I'm actually not entirely sure whether that story is completely apocryphal, um, if there's any truth to it at all. I know I've read it in a couple different places. um, And I came across it while I was researching for a class I teach about horror. So obviously, I've also been turning over a lot of ideas about monsters. Um, I've been working with monsters in my poems and thinking not so much about monsters as representations of um, concepts that scare us or metaphors for things that scare us, but rather thinking about the ways that we ourselves are often analogous to the monsters, the ways that we identify with those monsters in the stories. Um, So it started there, and then I was thinking about the you know, is the baby afraid? Would the baby be afraid um, if the baby saw a person that looked like a monster and then that was her dad? And then I was like, well, no, I guess they wouldn't be afraid, right? Because like, if that's your dad, you don't care what your dad looks like. And then I started thinking about the fear that Boris Karloff was feeling. And then that kind of spiraled into me contemplating the way that parenthood is so much about fear of both being monstrous to your children, the monstrosity of the responsibility of having these young people that you have to care for, um, the monstrosity of the anxiety attached to just pure, honest love, um, and I kind of went from there. So that's uh, that's what I was thinking about when I wrote Lichtenberg Scarring. Oh, and of course, X-Files, um, because I had just watched that Giovanni Ribisi lightning episode, which is a great one. If you don't know it, look it up.
6: Hi, my name is Todd Dillard, and this is my poem, The Dead. Every day, the grin on our front porch pumpkin widens, descends further into a marmalade guffaw. My daughter accepts this without questioning, sees the mouth as a flag of light unfurling. But I know it's the damn squirrels or the rabbits sneaking up the brick pathway, making a buffet out of a Saturday's worth of perioral reconstruction, of spooning citrine offal into our popcorn bowl. My prognosis. Where my daughter sees magic, I see hunger, the world encroaching with teeth. This year, she wants to be a hot dog. We bought a costume that came with the works, polyester buns, ketchup, relish, a squiggle of mustard, a wiener cap that jiggles as she skips across the yard, just like you're imagining. She knows people will smile. She knows someone is going to say, I could eat you up, just like she knows they won't. Here are the rules. If she knocks, if she asks politely, the neighbors will give her a treat. She must say, thank you. She must wait to eat it. Mommy and daddy will dole out the sweets one at a time. The pumpkins on the block will disappear. Sometimes her father will pick her up and cry softly into her hair. If she's patient, she'll have candy to last through the end of the year. So in writing the dead, I kind of drew on my experience as a new father and a first-time father, uh, which is very much about relearning the world because you're seeing it uh, for the first time very closely with someone else who's seeing it truly for the first time and also seeing them sort of bump and bruise and bumble and stumble and fall and make their way through it uh, for the first time. And one of the ways I've always thought about that is that Being a parent teaches you that the world has edges you've forgotten how to see. Uh, The world has teeth that you've forgotten are there. I wanted to write a poem that took on lived experience that I've had, which it's true. We had a pumpkin that was slowly devoured by our neighborhood squirrels and combined it with something that's also true, which is that my daughter thought something magical was happening. because the pumpkin's grin was widening as the local animals ate its face off. And so I, it, the poem for me then was pretty simple. It fell into place. Um, the two tensions lended itself to a of structure. The images uh, kind of coalesced naturally based on things I observed. And, um, and then it ties into how Because my daughter's world view is fairly limited and fairly narrow, being so young, she hasn't really negotiated death yet, she hasn't really, really encountered it directly, though she's had a great grandparent who passed, has had a neighbor, a close neighbor, who's passed, she still really hasn't fully grasped that yet. And that ultimately is the tension at the end of the poem, that there is so much the narrator knows that the daughter doesn't know. That when you place it next to these small and beautiful and innocent things that the daughter knows now, there's this sort of widening gap, widening realization that there's so many more things there for her to learn that the narrator, the father, isn't prepared for her to learn. It may never be.
3: I hope you enjoyed the poem, and thank you again for your listening. Gina K. Armstrong This
7: hard-headedness is generational, of course. Daughter Granddaughter There I am, sitting blissfully in my chair, this before my dad arrived on the scene, so I had a recliner of my own. With my grandmother maternal, our livin' help the way my mama treats her, in hers beside, watching trashy afternoon television, when my mother comes home from work, exhausted just sick of all the shit of being an 80s career gal, and discovers that my granny, laughing, toothless, breasts flat to her chest in the boating suck shirt she wore solely despite her eldest daughter, bought the wrong, I mean, who does this? The wrong goddamn peanut butter. I sat for a while while they argued about how my granny frugal from the Depression, and an alcoholic husband she'd never divorce, even though he had another family, just wouldn't listen, wouldn't do as she was asked. It got exhausting and too familiar, so I left to go listen to the Pistols for a while and shout out my own frustration that this is my fucking life, this peanut butter fight. When I came down after two hours for dinner, wearing my granny's Louisiana State Bird mosquito shirt, To show which side I supported They were still having the same argument Because no one here gives an inch of ground Unless threatened with violence See me, my brother I mean, who the fuck really cares about the peanut butter Except my mama And she's just doing it to make a point About who's the king of this castle God, I can't wait until I'm out of here in a few years And I can do whatever I want And live my own life And buy my granny all the peanut butter she can eat Along with the Coca-Cola she's had every morning for breakfast Every day for 40-something years Though I'm pretty sure it's just the Coke Who pays attention to what their granny eats for breakfast Mother, daughter When I come home from another day Taking every man in that office who knows less than I do's crap And handing it on down to the women below me Who do the grunt work A few cents less an hour Desperate like me To support their families And probably for the same reasons Their former husband's as cock addicted as mine I find that my mama After months of begging her Just to buy the Jif peanut butter Has done it again I lost it I make the meager money That buys that peanut butter And for heaven's sake I don't ask for much But please mama Just when I do ask for a brand name, buy it. I like Jiff. Nobody in this house even likes Peter Pan. Do you even like it, Mama? Stubborn, intractable woman that she is, unable to see my point of view, unable to say she'll do it, and end this useless, ceaseless argument I hated the minute I started it. She just sits there grinning without her teeth. That's another thing. Why won't the woman just wear her teeth? Why does she make me stand here over her and yell at her about peanut butter for all that is holy? Doesn't she know how bone-tired I am holding these two families together all these decades? Doesn't she remember what it's like working in a man's world for less than them, still relying on them to fill in the gaps even so, having to put cash in envelopes every paycheck just so we can make it to the end of the month? So what if my one indulgence is peanut butter? I've worked hard to lose a ton of weight, and if I want a spoonful of Jif as a reward while watching TV, who is she to deny me that? Isn't that worth making her admit, even if it takes hours? Mother, grandmother, I'm just sitting here with my second favorite grandchild. Don't let anyone tell you they don't have favorites, because that's bullshit. And I love this one to the moon and back, but she's not a real boy. And boys are just better, aren't they? Anyway, this one's got her mama's hard head and my sharp tongue, and she makes me laugh like nobody's business, but she's a pain in my ass, too. She does like to hear my stories, though, and laughs in the right places, and appreciates all the interesting things that happen to me, and loves me with all her tender heart that her mama hurts. Don't think I can't see it, but what can I do? We're watching the Adams family or some other stupid crap basically having a nice relaxing afternoon after the kids got home from school when my eldest stomps in from work and heads directly to the pantry to check my work on the grocery shopping like I'm a goddamn child and discovers my unforgivable sin of buying the wrong peanut butter. I had a fucking coupon. It was cheaper anyway. And it's not like I have some magic phone I can carry in my pocket to call and ask for permission, even if I would. I'm the one who does all the shopping and cleaning and watching these wretched kids. I love them so much. So she could go off to work, so who the hell is she to talk to her own mother like a hired hand anyway? I gave birth to that woman, but sometimes I swear to all that's holy she thinks it's the other way around, and I just want to smack the living shit out of her but she'd probably beat me right back, then make me apologize for her having done it. Just like her daddy there. I'm sorry I never had enough to really support us without him, and keep her brother healthy and safe away from the polio, so I couldn't leave that man, and she had to be a mama to her brother and sisters too early, and take all his shit too, so now she can't see any other way but to scream and yell and lord it over us. I'm just going to sit here ignoring whatever she's saying, Whatever it is she needs to get off her chest Because maybe that will make her happy Even though it never seems to But we both know I'm gonna do whatever I want Because I'm a grown ass woman who's her mama And she better not fucking forget it Because even though I look and act weak I'm just as strong inside as her And I survived a lot worse than a fight about peanut butter I wish she would remember that she has too Three hopeless, stubborn-ass women. We can eat one jar of peanut butter that isn't Jeff, even if we do like Jeff better. Because who the fuck cares, really? It's the principle of the thing. One of us has to be the dominant one. No winner. Only losers. No one ever willing to depart the field without a clear victory.
3: This poem sprang from a request that I had from
7: a friend and a coworker to write my childhood stories down. I was unable to do that in a prose memoir like most people, so I started writing poems about them. And it turns out that the happy, funny stories that I told when I wrote them as poems really have a dark undertone to them and served as kind of a catharsis and an exorcism of that childhood. This poem in particular started out as a traditional free verse with lines and stanzas in the three voices that you hear. But my wife, who's my primary first reader, said though she liked the poem and she liked where it was going, she was left wanting. And what she wanted was to hear more of the voices. So several of the other poems in this collection are prose poems. So what I did was take this poem and expand it into a prose poem in the three voices with a volta at the end, collecting all the voices together. And I'm really pleased with the result and hope that you have enjoyed hearing it as much as I have enjoyed writing and reading it.